Good morning, Northridge. It is so great to see you. So exciting. Uh, you don't know me, but I know you. I've heard all about you. I hold your pastor in such high esteem and the way you have lived out those 16 words that you hear so much about around here to advance his fame, his name. I'm Pastor Phil Hopper. I pastor a church down in Kansas City called Abundant Life, and it truly is a joy and honor to get to be with you today. Joshua chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Joshua chapter 3, if you have a copy of God's Word. Why is it the New Testament uses adjectives that ought to be the normal Christian life that so few Christians actually live out. For example, Jesus said in John 10 and verse 10, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. 22 years ago, I thought that would be a great name for a church, abundant life. That's how Jesus described what life ought to be for you and me. That's not a life free of adversity or a life that's always easy, but he said, I've come to give you life. You can have it more abundantly. 2 Corinthians 2.14 he calls us to live triumphantly. 2 Corinthians 3, 17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. See, these are the adjectives the New Testament uses that ought to describe our lives. Lives of victory, a life of freedom, a life of liberty, life abundantly, yet so many Christians I know live in mediocrity, if not complete captivity. And today I want to talk about how to get to the other side if you feel like you're stuck halfway. Joshua chapter 3 tells us about the early days of the Hebrews that God had chosen to one day bring forth the Messiah. And I'm convinced in Joshua chapter 3, their story in some way is our story. And that's what I want to talk about today, how to make conquest of the promised land. God had delivered the ancient Hebrews out of Egyptian slavery and Egyptian tyranny. God sent Moses to deliver them out of captivity. And now Moses has led them on a journey to a land that God promised would be a land that would flow with milk and honey. Now, before you get to Joshua 3, 40 years earlier, tells us that first generation of Hebrews that came out of Egypt, they almost crossed into the promised land at a place called Kadesh Barnea. It means wilderness sanctuary. And it was in this area that God sent 12 spies into the land to spy out the land. They were doing little intelligence gathering, little reconnaissance, right? And 12 of those spies came back. And it was there they would make a fatal decision. Church, listen carefully. Your decisions will define your destination. And it was there that that first generation made the decision of self-preservation. And in so doing, they all would meet their death and destruction in the wilderness. Enough faith to get out of Egypt, not enough faith to get into the promised land. You see, I'm convinced they were unbelieving believers, like a lot of God's people today. Unbelieving believers, enough faith to get into heaven, just not enough faith to get through that trial or that tribulation. And the reason why is we have a faith, a paradigm of faith, that I'm convinced the early Christians knew nothing about. The book of Acts knows nothing about. It's this ultimate oxymoron called safe faith. And today I want to talk about what is faith as opposed to safe faith. Church, listen carefully. Safe faith is not faith. See, a faith that plays it safe is not real faith. It's like the ultimate oxymoron. Now, what is an oxymoron? An oxymoron is when we use two words together in the same phrase that really don't belong together. They're kind of opposites. Like last night after the evening service, uh, we drove to your beautiful downtown Plymouth, and it's such a lovely place to be, and we went to, is it Carnelli's Italian? 
Did I say that right? Okay, I flubbed that up. I don't know how to say it, but I, but I ordered the seafood uh, dish, and it was amazing. It was awesome, and they had shrimp in there. I love shrimp, and they're about this big. Somebody said, that's like jumbo shrimp. I said, no, that's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as jumbo shrimp. It's like an oxymoron. I, I said, uh, you know, yesterday somebody told you, you know, when oxymoron is around here, here's the ultimate oxymoron in this part of the world. Smart Buckeye. I'm still trying to figure out. I've been here for 24 hours. I've never really been in Michigan much in my life. Is this like, is this go blue or is it go green? I can't tell. Blue? Blue? Is there no green in the house anywhere? Okay. Church, I have a heavy cross to carry. Even, even all these years later, I played Division I football at a basketball school, the University of Kansas. It is a heavy cross to bear. Yes, I did. I played football at Kansas, had blood and sweat equity in the Kansas football program. So uh, I know I'm in football country, but you guys play a little basketball up here too, don't you, from what I hear? Like the Fab Five, that was a thing at one time. Okay, okay, okay. I digress. Here's what I want you to see. Oxymoron. Jumbo shrimp, no such thing. Smart buckeye. I've heard there's no such thing. I didn't say it. I didn't say it. I'm just repeating it. Safe faith, there's no such thing. Church, listen, faith that isn't dangerous isn't faith. Faith that isn't risky isn't faith. Faith that comes with a guarantee based on what we can see is not faith. What happened to that first generation of Hebrews? God promised them this land, Canaan land, this piece of real estate that's still there in the Middle East. They said it's a land that flows with milk and honey, and I'm giving it to you. Ten of those spies came back and gave a report of the land. Said, yes, it's just as God said. It's an amazing amazing land of fertility and bounty and beauty. It's a land truly that flows with milk and honey, and we brought some of the fruit of the land back, and they brought clusters of grapes, and they could hardly carry them. I mean, these grapes were as big as cantaloupe and watermelon. I mean, this is an amazing land, they said, but there's just one problem. Yeah, we know what God has said, but he didn't tell us about the giants in the land. Now, we've seen the, the people that live there, and they are some big old boys, big old boys. And there's no way we can whoop them. Uh-uh, no way. Uh, there's no way we're going into combat with those guys because we were like grasshoppers compared to them. They were like, and we're like, there's no way, no way. It'd be like the University of Kansas this fall taking on the University of Michigan in football. No chance. I didn't say basketball. I said football, no chance. Like we are not going over there because we are all going to die if we do. They've got these iron chariots and they're going to pour milk over our kids and eat them for breakfast and there's no way, no way, no way. And they made a fatal decision. They knew what God said, but they refused to believe what God said. And I'm trying to tell you today, that decision would cost an eternal, uh, an, an, a generation, complete devastation. They would die in the wilderness. Like so many modern Christians, guys, listen carefully. We have enough faith to get into heaven, just not enough faith to get through the day. We have enough faith to get into heaven, just not enough faith to see God break the chains of addiction, to see God break the chains of temptation, just not enough faith to break the chains of depression. 
See, we know what God has said. The question is, will you believe what God has said because you appropriate all the promises of your life that God has made you in exactly the same way, by faith, but it can't be faith that is safe. And so the best definition I know of, of faith, it goes something like this. Faith is believing something is so when it isn't so, so it'll be so because God said it's so. That's faith. It's believing something is so when it isn't so, so it'll be so because God said it's so. So you had that generation of Hebrews, they knew what God said, God said it was so, but they said, we don't believe it is so, oh no, we won't go. So consequently, they would get stuck halfway, unbelieving believers, it's another oxymoron. And I'm convinced today there are people of God in our day, like there were people of God in those ancient days that were unbelieving believers. They got stuck halfway. For some of us here, we have lived our entire Christian life in the wilderness. Yes, we've been delivered from sin's penalty, but we've never been delivered from sin's power. We know that we've been delivered from the penalty of sin. We're no longer under sin's penalty. We know we've been born again, that we've been saved by the blood of Calvary, but we live today in mediocrity or apathy, and for some of us here, complete captivity, and today is the day I want you to take some ground from the enemy. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to see how to get out of the wilderness, into the promised land, and we're going to see God part the waters of the Jordan miraculously. And what God has done for them, he wants to do for you and for me. Joshua 3 and verse 1. If you're ready for this, say, let's go. Here we go. Joshua 3 and verse 1. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. Now, 40 years earlier, Joshua was one of the two spies that came back. Unlike the other 10, he was one of the two that came back and said, yes, it is an amazing land. We've heard what God has said. If God said it, he will do it. Let's go get it. But the 10 overruled the two. Now, God has raised him, unlike all the others that died in the wilderness, God is now going to reward his faith. And it's going to become sight. He's about to lead that next generation into the promised land. It says this in verse 2. And after three days, the officers went through the camp. Now, highlight that. Put that in your mind's eye because that's very important. After three days, the officer went throughout the camp giving orders to the people saying, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before, but keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. I want you to notice something. They're about to cross the Jordan into the promised land for the first time in their history. And I want you to notice, not coincidentally, not accidentally, I'm convinced very providentially, all of this happens on the third day after three days. Now, church, you need to know something about Pastor Phil. I simply believe that the Bible really is the Word of God. It is not the Word of men. Yeah, I know we live at a time where it's like outdated, antiquated, it can't really be the Word of God. I mean, come on, seriously, really, maybe it contains the Word of God, it's not all the Word of God. No, I'm telling you, men are not smart enough to do this stuff. I mean, God leaves his fingerprints all over this thing. When I was a cop and I was a Kansas City police officer before I was a pastor, before I knew I'd be in ministry and preaching and pastoring, I was a member of the KCPD. 
for eight years, from 92 to 2000, until God got in my way and called me to ministry. One of the things I liked doing was dusting for fingerprints. You know why? Because it could reveal somebody who had been there even after they were gone. Guess what God has done with Scripture? He has left his fingerprints all over it to reveal he had been there. There's a fingerprint here. Don't miss it. Three days. Listen, it didn't say after two days. It doesn't say after five days. It didn't say after ten days. But after three days, God was about to part the waters. You know why? Because God is reminding us of something. Every time you see that phrase, three days, third day, it's like a neon sign flashing, hey, there's something to happen on the third day. Remember what happened on the third day. The source of our victory always goes back to what happened on the third day. What happened on the third day, church? Somebody tell me, the greatest event in all of history, it was what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died for our sin, but three days later he rose again. He is alive today forever and ever. Amen. 2,000 years ago, the sinless Son of God came like the sons of men where he could die for our sin and rise again. God became a man to become our sacrificial lamb. He took our blame, our shame, all of our stain, but he came out of the grave saying, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. I am he that was dead, but I'm alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of hell and death. He's got the keys to set us free. He said, the Spirit of the Lord God has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. He's come to set us free. And our victory is built on the resurrection. He broke the chains that we sang about this morning. He's broken the chain of the sin and the stain and all the shame. And I'm trying to tell you today, the way you get to the other side and live in the promises of God and the power of God, the promised land spiritually, is by going through a crucifixion personally. Now, this is the big idea for the day. This is the, the main thing I want you to hear me say. Listen very carefully. To live in the power of the resurrection demands a personal crucifixion. And that's why this happens on the third day, not just any day. God's reminding us. You don't get to live in the victory of the resurrection if you're not willing to bear an agony personally of a crucifixion. See, we have a Christianity today that does not have a cross. Jesus says, make a commitment to follow me. No, he didn't. What he said is, take up your cross and follow me. See, we know that Jesus bore a cross for us, but we have forgotten over and over again in the New Testament, he said, I want you to bear a cross for me too. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus said these words, if anyone wants to come after me and follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, remember, in Jesus' day, nobody had ever heard of wearing a cross, and some of us today are wearing a cross pendant, a thing that's uh, beautiful, it is shiny, it's gold, and it's a, it's a thing that is pretty. But I want you to understand, in Jesus' day, a cross was not something you bore or wore. It was something you bore. 
It was not something you would wear. It is something you would bear. And it was not a thing that was beautiful. It was a thing that was gory. It was ugly. It was brutal. It was bloody. When Jesus said, take up your cross, his first century followers would have known exactly what he was talking about. They had seen many people crucified on a cross many times before. And they understood exactly the invitation was to follow him on the Calvary road of suffering. A cross is something you suffered on. A cross is something you died on. See, Jesus was teaching that if you want to follow me, it's going to cost you something. Listen carefully. A faith that costs nothing will accomplish nothing. A faith that demands nothing will do nothing. And that's why Jesus was making it clear, if you want to live in the power of the resurrection, it's going to demand a co-crucifixion. And this is the teaching throughout the New Testament, over and over again. The Apostle Paul would write about this over and over again, Galatians 2 and verse 20. He said, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me me. He said, I'm crucified with Christ personally, and that is our identity as those who have been blood-bought, ransomed, and redeemed by the blood of the Son of God. See, 2,000 years ago, God saw you in Christ, and because you were in Christ, you died with Christ. But check this out, because you died with Christ, you also rose with Christ, So now you can live in the victory of the resurrection, but only if you're willing to live in some capacity in the agony of the crucifixion, Romans 6 and verse 6. Knowing this, that our old selves was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. There's the ultimate oxymoron. To the degree you have died is the degree you will become fully alive. The paradox of Christianity. Now here's the reality. Paul taught theologically that we are already dead in Christ positionally. But then he taught you have to do it daily. 1 Corinthians 15, 31. He said, I die daily. You see, practically, to live in the power of the resurrection means every single day begins exactly the same way. Today I die. I give up rights to my life. I am crucified with Christ. And as I'm crucified with Christ, it's no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. You see, Jesus came to live in you, but now he wants to live through you, and that means there is a supernatural you. You don't have to live a natural kind of life. You can live supernaturally. And I've said many times, if we can explain it, God didn't do it. I don't know about you, but I want to live a supernatural life. Amen? I don't want to settle for life in the wilderness. Over and over again, Kadesh Barnea, Numbers 13, Numbers 14, it, it meant wilderness sanctuary. It was a desert oasis. For the next 40 years, Israel would wander aimlessly in the desert, but over and over again, they would wind up at Kadesh Barnea. It was a wilderness sanctuary. No, it was not the promised land that flowed with milk and honey, but it was easy. It was mediocrity. Do you understand that Satan will let you stay in Kadesh Barnea as long as you don't make the decision to cross over, as long as he can keep you in the wilderness, he'll make it easy. It's not going to be costly because he knows you're a threat to the enemy if you choose to cross over and live in your true identity victoriously. 
And today is the day to say, no longer am I going to live at Kadesh Barnea. I want to cross over and live out all that God called me to and all that he made me be when he saved me and delivered me from sin's captivity. Now listen carefully. Philippians 3.10 gives us the cost. Here's the condition. Look at what it says. The Apostle Paul said, I want to know him, Christ, yes. Everybody say Yes. Now listen, the Apostle Paul knew Christ by now. He's not saying, I don't know Jesus. Would somebody please introduce me to Jesus? No, the Apostle Paul knew Jesus. What he's saying here in Philippians 3.10 is I want to know him more. I want to know more of him. I want to know him in a deeper way, a more personal way. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, chances are every single one of us would say, yes, I want to know Christ. Yes? Some of us aren't sure. That's okay. Hopefully by the end of the day, you will be. I want to know Christ, yes, and the power of his resurrection, yes? Yeah, we all want to live in the supernatural power of God. But you understand, nobody really wants to live in the second part of that verse. And participate in his sufferings? Be conformed to his death? See, we're learning the paradox. You don't get the power of the resurrection on your life until you're willing to embrace the crucified life. And this is why I'm convinced the church in America is often powerless instead of power. Jesus said in Acts 1 and verse 8, a verse that I know that you know well, Jesus said these words, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now check this out. The word power in the English is the word dunamis from which we get the word dynamite. He said, I'm going to give you dynamite power, explosive power power, supernatural power. You don't think that's power. Stick a piece of dynamite in somebody's hand, light the fuse, and see if it doesn't change their life. Yeah, you've got dunamis power living within you, dynamite power. Ephesians 3 and verse 20, he is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power, dunamis, living within us. Why do we settle for less than living in the dunamis power, the dynamite power of God? Now watch this, Acts 1 and verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you shall be witnesses of me. The word witness in English is the Greek word martis, from which we get the word martyr. His first century followers literally heard him say, you shall be martyrs of me. Do you see the connection? You can live with God's power, but only if you're willing to be a martyr. And to the degree you're willing to lay down your life, you will live in the power of the resurrected Christ. And guys, I'm telling you, it will affect every area of your life, every area. Your marriage, your family, your finances, your profession, your career, every area of your life. When you choose to die and let go of your life, God will resurrect it now to live in the power of the resurrected Christ. Krista and I have been married uh, 30 years. You probably haven't met her. She's here, but uh, it's a big auditorium. I'm not going to point her out. would embarrass her, but she's here somewhere. And um, if we should meet after this service, and you, you're going to say something. I've heard this so many times, I don't know how, you know, can't count them all. 30 years. They look at Krista and they say, you don't look nearly old enough to have been married 30 years. 
And then they'll look at me and say nothing. <laughs> Been married 30 years, but we almost weren't. Of the 30 years, I'll never forget 14, year 14. Like so many couples and so many marriages, we were suffering, now looking back, a slow death, slow erosion. I know now the devil was trying to attack my marriage, knowing if he could take out my marriage, he could take out my ministry. And there was a pattern in our marriage. It began early on, year one, maybe once a year, and then it would happen twice a year, then it would happen three times a year, and then it would happen maybe once a month, and then it was once a week. What would happen is that Krista would say something or do something that would injure me in some way. It would hurt me. Now, no man wants to admit he's hurt because we're way too macho for that. And so what we do when we feel weak, we just naturally retreat. Ladies, you need to know that a man has two mirrors, his wife and his work, and every single day he's saying, mirror, mirror on the wall, am I strong enough at all? Mirror, mirror on the wall, am I man enough at all? And anything that makes him feel weak, he will retreat. Now, this was more to do with me and my brokenness than Krista. She didn't even know what she was doing, but she would hit a trigger or she'd push a button. Something would happen, and it would make me feel wounded or hurt, and I would retreat. And what would happen is I might not talk to my wife for three days straight. Now, all the ladies right now are going, and all the fellas are going, Don't even blink, don't breathe, okay? I, I know I'm not the only one to run this play, okay? I'm telling you what was happening, guys. Every single time I would feel wounded, I would want to protect my life, hang on to my life, save my life. And in so protecting my life, I was taking life from my wife. I was taking life from my bride. And in taking life from my bride, I was taking life from my marriage, and my marriage would have slowly died. And what happened one night is I heard my wife weeping. I'd gone to bed. We'd gone to bed. We turned off the light. I can't remember what she said, but she said or did something, and it hit that trigger again, and I was injured, and I was mad, and I turned over, and I was not going to talk to her for the next three days. I was going to sleep mad. I was going to wake up mad. I was going to show her like I'd done so many times before. Well, this time I heard something I hadn't heard before. I heard her weeping quietly in the darkness of the night. I heard her sobbing. And then I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit. You could lose her if you don't take care of her. And it broke me. And for the first time in my life, instead of turning away from the pain to save my life, I turned into the pain to give my life. For the first time in my life, instead of trying to protect my life, I was now willing to give my life. Up to that point, I would have said, yeah, I'm a great husband, I'm a godly husband, I'm a Christian man, I'm a pastor by now. I would have said, I've lived out Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. But the reality is, I'd never been an Ephesians 5.25 husband every single time it came down to her life or my life, I'd seek to save my life and hang on to my life and protect my life instead of giving my life. But that night, for the first time, I turned into my wife and I died. 
I took the nails. I no longer cared about the pain and the injury. And I'm trying to tell you, church, when I became the man God wanted, I finally got the wife that I wanted. That night I died. And a resurrection took place in our marriage. God resurrected our marriage that was slowly dying. I'm trying to tell you, it will affect every single area of your life. That when you stood at an altar and you took your vows and you said these words, I do, what you really said is, I die too. And while two people choose to live, a marriage slowly dies. But when two people choose to die, the marriage comes alive. You see, on the other side of the crucifixion, there is a resurrection. This is how it works in every area of your life. I can tell you, 22 years ago, there was this little bitty church plant, just a small, small church, and our pastor had resigned, and they asked, of all people, a police officer to fill in one Sunday. That's weird. There I am, filling in one Sunday. I'd preached one time in my life up to this moment, just one time. I I had barely started seminary. I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no training, but the situation was so desperate, nobody else is there. They asked me to fill in, and there I am. For about four months, I'm a cop six days a week, preacher on Sunday. We're just a little little bitty church, a little tiny church, just trying to stay alive. Looking back now, I know we were about to become a statistic. Most church plants flounder and fail in five years. We were about to be one of them. And when it could not get any worse, last Sunday of 1999, it was a cold, wintry, blustery day. Hardly anybody was there anyway. About 25 people were there. I had to make an announcement that I thought could be the death nail in the coffin of this church. The one staff member we had left had to resign because of an immoral relationship that he'd been in. And I thought this could be the death of that little church. And I don't remember what I said. It couldn't have been very good. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I preached that day. And then I gave an altar call to the 25 people that were there that day. I said these words, if you will come and get before God, on our face before God, and we're going to dig in in prayer, and we're going to ask God to come save our church. There was not a dry eye in the place. All 25 people came that day. We got on our face before God, and 25 people died And I'm trying to tell you, because 25 people died that day, the church was resurrected, and it came alive. We had a funeral for what was then called Liberty, and it was resurrected in May of 2000, a church called Abundant Life. And for the thousands and thousands and thousands that we reach now every single weekend, the seed was those 25 people 22 years ago that got on their knees and gave their life for the bride, the bride of Christ, I'm trying to tell you, there is a resurrection on the other side of a crucifixion. It's true of every single year of your life, and this is what Israel is about to experience now. Look at what it says in Joshua 3, 5. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. He'll do amazing things among you. How many of you would love to see God do amazing things? I want to see those amazing things in my life. Too much of the time we settle for the lesser things instead of the great things, the best things. We sing about the God of miracles and the God of wonders and the God that can break all the chains, but then we do everything in our power to never need a miracle. We do everything in our power to never have to see the supernatural. And right here in verse 5, God gives us 
the condition to see those amazing things, the supernatural resurrection power of God. He said, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things. Now, I want you to notice what he didn't say. He did not say, commit yourselves, for tomorrow God's going to do amazing things. No, he said, consecrate yourselves. Look, I'm convinced the church in America lacks power because the church in America lacks martyrs. The church in America is full of committed Christians, but the church in America is not full of consecrated Christians. See, they're not the same thing. Nowhere in the New Testament does God ever ask you to make a commitment to Jesus. Our language is completely wrong theologically. Nowhere does Jesus say, make a commitment and follow me. You know why? Because Jesus does not want to be just another commitment in an already overcommitted life. Think about all the commitments you had 10 years ago that you're no longer committed to today. See, commitments come and go. Commitments change. But consecration is something different. Consecration has to do with that which you're willing to die for. Consecration is just another word for a crucifixion. I'm committed to a lot of things, but I'm consecrated to only a few things. I'm committed to the Kansas Jayhawks. I got blood and sweat equity in the Kansas football program. I don't care. I'm going to root for them again. They are my team. They're going to go one and ten again. But I'm committed. But I'm not consecrated. I'm not going to die for the Jayhawks. I'm not going to give my life for the Jayhawks. No, but I'm consecrated to Jesus. I will give my life to Jesus. Do you see the difference? To get on the other side of the Jordan demands more than a commitment. It demands consecration. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul himself uses the Exodus story as a metaphor for our story. And what he says in 1 Corinthians 10 is that first generation's baptism was when God parted the Red Sea and they went through the Red Sea. Now for the second generation, their baptism is when God parts the waters of the Jordan and they go through the Jordan. Church, I know that you know this. Baptism is a picture of what? It's a picture of a death. It's a picture of a burial. Man, I wish I could be here in September when you do this outside service and bunches of people are going to be baptized. It's amazing. The symbolism as they are lowered underneath the water is a burial. Now, the good news is we don't leave them underneath the water. There's always a resurrection. I want you to understand that is a picture of consecration, like I am consecrated to whatever it is I'm willing to die for. This first generation wanted to hang on to their life and save their life. They had a faith that was safe, and in so doing, they would lose their life. They would all die in the wilderness, enough faith to get out of Egypt, not enough faith to get into the promised land. But the second generation, led by Joshua, they're going into combat with a race of giants. We don't care if we die because we've already given up our life. No more self-preservation hanging on to our lives. We want to live in the power and the promises of the resurrected Christ. Courage, listen carefully, I know it's scary. Taking a step of faith is scary. It feels risky, it doesn't come with a guarantee because it's things that you can't fully see. But listen carefully, courage, it is never the absence of fear, it is the absence of self. I've heard it said, well, faith and fear can't coexist. I have an ancient 
Hebrew idiom, baloney. Faith and fear do coexist all the time. The only question is, which one will control you? See, courage is not the absence of fear. It's the absence of self. To get over your fear, you got to get over yourself. I can tell you personally, when that church 22 years ago called me to preach, I was so not ready. I had barely started seminary. I had no idea what I was doing. I ran from the call of God. I was scared for my life. And the irony is I've been in scary places. I had been a SWAT cop. I'd done scary things. I've been shot at at close range. Winston Churchill said, the most exhilarating experience in life is to be shot at and missed. Oh yeah, that's the ultimate adrenaline dump. Life-changing. Here, these people were going to shoot at me or anything, but I was, it was the most scary moment of my life. You know why? Because I was fearful of failure. What if I fail? You know how I had to get over my fear? I had to get over myself. See, when you become selfless, you then can become fearless. You know why? Because you got nothing left to lose. You've already given everything away. And when I quit trying to hang on to my life and preserve my life, then I got to live in the power of the resurrected Christ. And I look back 22 years and I wonder all that I would have missed if I had not made that decision to take that dangerous, scary step and say yes. And that's what Joshua and the Hebrews are about to do. Verse 9, Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Hivites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, and the Termites in your life. All the giants you face that are real, let's say, oh no, you can't go. Or even little termites that just eat away quietly that you can't see. God says, I'm going to drive them all out. If you just take a step and say yes. See, verse 11, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest, yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off, so the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Now there is another fingerprint of God in this text. It is not an accident. It is providence that when God parted the water, he parted it at a city called Adam. The water flowing into the Dead Sea. 1 Corinthians 15, in Adam all die, but in Christ all may be made alive. He said, out of your belly will come living waters. The Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch this. There was a condition. God's going to do a miracle. But there's always a condition. There's always God's part. There's our part. He said, when I see the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant hit the waters and the sole of their feet 
standing in the water, both feet in the water, then I'm going to part the water. Now see, had they been like most Christians today, they would have stood on the banks of the Jordan all day long, and they would have sang, and they would have clapped, and they would have raised their hands and said, God, we believe. We believe. And as soon as you part the waters, we're going over. God, we know you can. We believe you can. We know you're a God of miracles. You're a God of wonders. And as soon as you do that miracle, we will go over. And as long as they were waiting on God, God would have been waiting on them. See, we say Isaiah 40, 31, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. But do you understand waiting on God never means waiting and doing nothing. It always means waiting and then doing something. See, only when you put your faith in motion does God then go in motion. And for some of us here, the reason you've never seen God in motion in your life on your behalf is you've never put your faith in motion in your life on God's behalf. What is faith in motion? It is obedience in action. Until God saw their feet in the water, he was not going to part the water. It is time to quit standing on the banks of the Jordan saying, God, when you part the waters, I'll go over. It's time to get both feet in the water. No holding back. And here's the amazing thing. God tells us specifically it's harvest time. It was at flood stage. God could have waited for another time when it was just a little trickle of water. But no, God specifically had them cross over at flood stage. You know why? Because God was removing all possibility that they could get to the other side and go, we did that. We did that. No, sometimes God will leverage the odds against you just to prove to you that he can save you. They put their faith in motion, then God went in motion. It's time to quit putting one foot in the water, church, one foot on dry land, and just testing the water. I'm, I'm, I'm close enough, I can get backwards safe. If I have, it's, time, it's time to put both feet in the water. I'm all in. I'm consecrated. I'm not committed. I'm consecrated. And I will promise, I will promise, I will promise to the degree you fully die, you will come fully alive. Jesus said, whoever will seek to save his life will lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospel, the same shall save it. You can hang on to your life, and eventually you will lose your life. But if you let go of your life, Jesus said, you will find your life, supernatural life, resurrected life. And to the degree you fully die, you will fully live and come alive. December. 1989, I went to a funeral that changed my life. I've been to many, many, many funerals in my life, but none like this one. This funeral changed my life forever. In 1989, I went to a funeral, and that funeral was mine. 21 years of age, I've been running from God, I've been wrestling with God, wouldn't give up, wouldn't give in, I've been raised in a church like this one, I knew the truth, I knew the gospel, knew who Jesus was, that he died for my sin, rose again, I was the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, I'd gone off to Lawrence, Kansas, the far country, I was living the dream, party hardy, have a blast while it lasts. 
I became the prodigal son living in the pig pen of sin. 1989, I'm driving home from Lawrence, Kansas for Christmas break. Got run off the road by an 18-wheeler semi. The tracks in the snow told the story. I crossed the center median into oncoming traffic. I'm going the wrong way on the interstate. I'm completely out of control. I'm doing 360s. I cross back over the median again. I'm still out of control. I realize I am not regaining control. And in that moment, as I cross back onto the lanes I had left, I look up. There's another 18-wheeler coming right at me. And it's amazing in these life-and-death moments how time seems to slow down and what takes only microseconds seems to go into slow-mo and you can see your life flashing before your eyes and the things that you actually have time to think. When I saw the 18-wheeler coming at me, I resigned my life. I knew in that moment I was about to die. And I'll never forget the last thing I thought right before impact I know there's a heaven, I know there's a hell. I don't know where I'm going, but I guess I'm gonna know now. Because I knew that I was about to close my eyes in time, I was going to wake up in eternity, and I did not know what I would see. As you can see, I lived. Two of us are thankful I lived. Well, that was good news to me. That day I should have died, I walked away fully alive. I went home that day, I got on my bedroom floor, I closed the door, and that is the day I died. On my face before God, I repented of my sin. I had a funeral that day, and when I stood up, a resurrection took place, and somebody brand new lived. That day, I took up my cross. I chose the crucifixion, and every single day since, I have lived in the victory of the resurrection. Guys, over 30 years later, after having died, I have never, ever been more alive. And today is the day, today is the day that someone here needs to go home and have a funeral. A funeral that will change your life forever. A funeral for you when you die. I will absolutely promise tomorrow you will never be more alive. Jesus, I pray for every person under the sound of my voice, those watching online and those that are right here in this auditorium, that today would be the day that we cross the Jordan. No more wilderness sanctuary hanging out in the wilderness of apathy, complacency, mediocrity, or even complete captivity. But today would be the day to make conquest of the promised land spiritually to live in all the freedom, liberty, power, and authority that's secured for us at Calvary. I pray, God, that you would bless each one with a double portion of your spirit in the days ahead, that you bring about a resurrection in that marriage, a resurrection in that family, a resurrection in that friendship, those finances, 
that we would walk in the reality of who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you very much, Northridge. Thank you for the honor.